0: Hello, and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you have sent me by email at AskChrisShelton at gmail.com. I am so glad to be back in the saddle here this week and back amongst you guys. Thank you very much for inviting me into your home. Uh, May has been a rough month this year uh, between the second COVID dose and that kind of putting me down for a while. And another little thing that I'm not going to get into that also put me down for a while this last week, um, it has been a real challenge to get all the things done that I usually want to get done and keep moving forward on my university work. That's actually kind of um, gone on the back burner a little bit this month, but that's okay. I've got things scheduled forward, and I've been working with my professor, and i um, getting some extensions on a couple assignments and stuff, and that's been moving forward just fine and all is well. And I actually feel now, as I sit here physically, a lot better and mentally really ready to go. And I've put some content together uh, with a podcast yesterday with Matthew Sheffield that I was very happy with. We did a really nice long chat, and I posted that. And you'll see another similar discussion with another kind of bigwig political type person, uh, CNN, MSNBC, Fox contributor, et cetera. They'll be on my channel next week. So that's coming up. In addition to that, this last week, Danny Masterson had his preliminary hearing and uh, is now moving forward to um, his arraignment on June 7th. And then, of course, we're expecting a uh, plea of not guilty, and then it will move forward to trial, probably late this year or early next year, uh, depending on how the timing works on all of that. So, exciting times in this last week on the Scientology front too, and we got to talk about that uh, quite a bit on the Critical Conversation Show, uh, which I just, which was just uh, as I'm recording this here today, Saturday. We just did that. Excuse me, last night, uh, yesterday on Friday night. So you can check that out on replay. We had some pretty interesting conversation about my ideas and other people's ideas about Danny Masterson and Scientology and the cover-up that Scientology engaged in and how Scientology, while not on trial itself, is certainly put itself uh, worst foot forward on this entire Masterson issue, and they are now getting wrapped up and wrangled up in this uh, rape case. So that's kind of good as far as exposing Scientology's abuses. And we have already seen major media on this just in the last 48 hours. So if you're not following along on Tony Ortega's blog on what's happening with Masterson's trial, you really want to catch up because that preliminary hearing was quite detailed and quite shocking. And uh, it was really just the beginning of this thing. And uh, and we're going to, I am sure we're going to move forward and have a trial on this, and this should be really something else. So lots happening. Uh, and this week I have almost all Scientology related stuff that I'm going to be addressing and answering for you. So let's get to your questions. Christopher from Canada. A. Do you think that a homosexual celebrity like Catherine Bell could ever be openly gay and still remain in good standing with Scientology, or is she most likely pressured to never open that closet door in public? B, are you of the opinion that certain Scientology celebrities are probably aware of the controversies and crimes of the Church of Scientology but choose to stay in anyway? perhaps due to the privileges that they are rewarded or maybe even out of paranoia from what breaking away could mean to their reputations. The amount of dirty laundry that the church has documented on all the celebs from their auditing sessions must certainly play a factor in any hesitancy to ever be critical against the church. All right. Thank you for these questions. And I'm kind of doing some twofers today and kind of giving you a beefed up episode since we didn't do one last week. So on these two questions, first off, I am positive that Catherine Bell is hiding or is staying in the closet, so to speak as a homosexual, I think, I mean, I think we all know, and I think she's certainly made enough allusions to it. And on her Wikipedia page, it says she's living with this woman, but it doesn't say that they are in a homosexual relationship. And Catherine, I noted on her Wikipedia page is also noted as being at the state of clear. That's the level right before you start getting access to all the upper level confidential material, which I'm sure Catherine is being denied access to because of that um the relationship and the fact that shit could go open and that would reflect very badly on Scientology as far as they're concerned. Scientology's um, dogma and its writings from Hubbard on the subject are crystal clear. there is to be no kind of sexually perverted or awful kind of activity, and that is how Scientology classifies anything that falls under LGBT activity. So, Um, so yeah, I think she's definitely being pressured on that. And I think that she is uh, conforming. She's been a Scientologist for many, many, many years. I'm sure it's an integral part of her life as she sees it. But, you know, I don't really know anything more about what, you know, where she's coming from on it. Um, As far as the opinion of my opinion about Scientology celebrities, and of course, this is front and center in the media right now, because one thing that has not been talked about a whole lot at all yet, and I really hope some media, some big wig media people, pick up on this. Whether it's celebrity media actually, you know, taking an interest or or otherwise, mainstream media, is Danny Masterson's connections because he is—they are legion. He has, you know, all the cast from the '70s show still have group text chats that they they say. And keep in touch. They're close friends. Ashton Kutcher is best friends with Danny Masterson, hasn't said a word about this, has been out partying with him. So, I mean, he might, Ashton and Mila may well be closet Scientologists for all we know. Scientology is very wrapped up in Danny Masterson's social circles and his family, and extended family, are all Scientologists. And um, and so he's, he's neck deep in it. And uh, I think that you're gonna find, as you look out through that, that uh, the, the, those people who are connected, whether it's an inner circle, next inner circle, outer circle, you're gonna find all kinds of shenanigans and uh, probably illegal behavior and cover up and all kinds of stuff. And the thing about cult members, let's let's remember that these are Scientologists. They're not just Catholics, they're not just Christians, or Jews, or Muslims, they're Scientologists, and that's different because Scientology is a destructive cult. It's a high-control, mind-altering group which uses authoritarian uh, techniques and principles in order to control its members. It's not a passive organization, and it takes a deeply, deeply invasive attitude about its members. Uh, Scientologists, on the other hand, give this all a pass and excuse all of this authoritarian behavior and see Scientology's um, abuses as features, not bugs. This is the problem with being in a cult is you, you can't have straight, you know, a, an objective perspective about it. So, um, you know, do I think that some of these celebrities are aware of the controversies and crimes? Yeah, absolutely. Of course they are. Absolutely they are. I, I was aware of it. Uh, they were are, are no doubt aware of it. Um, but the, 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 the thing about being aware of something and, and then wanting to see it in a bad light and then wanting to step up and do something about it, you see, these are three different things. So I think they're aware of the shenanigans. I think they're aware of, of the fact that Danny Masterson, certainly they're certainly aware that he's on trial right now. They're certainly aware that Leah took off, that Mike took off, that they have an Emmy award-winning show. That must, excuse me, rile them up. And, um, and they're aware of, you know, the, the, the toxicity of Scientology. And some of them are probably aware of the reasons why that toxicity is there, but they are stuck in that situation. Um, remember also that a bunch of these guys are second-generation members. They were raised with it just like I was. It takes an extraordinary act of will to step up and step out of that. It is not an easy thing to do. Most people just have, they just can't deal with it. They just don't want to deal with it. It's easier to just go with the flow, keep doing what they're doing. You know, kind of inertia, really. It's easy to just kind of keep doing what it's doing than to have to put the force and energy and, and uh, work into changing that. And when you're a second gen, it's 10 times worse because your entire family is usually part of the problem. And that is definitely the case with Masterson and his circle. And a lot of these celebrities, they were, um, they're were either in, in social groups, professional groups, or familial groups that all demand that they have some allegiance or loyalty to Scientology, even if they're not doing Scientology anymore or don't want to do Scientology anymore. Because um, as using Master System as an example, that guy hasn't done Scientology services that, that I could find evidence for in years, like well over 15 years, since that guy has moved one bit on Scientology's bridge or really done much of anything with Scientology. He's not really much of a Scientologist, but he's in bed with the church. The church is in bed with him. And as I said on my Colin show this week, you know, the church is with its celebrities is kind of in for a penny, in for a pound. You know, they're they're gonna go the distance. So that's kind of what's going on there. And um, yeah, and the amount of dirty laundry that the church has documented on the celebs could also absolutely be an additional factor and a pressure point. To keep them in or uh, keep them quiet. So uh, all of the above. Johnny, no stars. A, since Dave took out a major part of the training bridge, class six course, how can they train class eight and class 12 auditors? Do they just say whatever and skip the most important auditor course there is? B, According to John Atack and Karen De La Carriere, there were only a few class 12 case supervisors ever made in all the history of Scientology, and currently there might not be even one left. Is this true? And if so, how can they deliver the L's? Okay, thank you for this question. I'm going to give you my best supposition on this because obviously I'm not in the church anymore and I'm not privy to what they're doing or how they justify the kind of crazy changes that they're making in the bridge. Uh, Miscavige has been very busy rewriting all of Scientology and, and scalpeling or excising, taking away all the things that Hubbard said that he doesn't like or that are inconvenient for him or that make things difficult for his life. This has been going on for a long time. And the class six course is St. Hill Special Briefing Course. Is the single largest course in all of Scientology. It's, it's extensive. It is a chronological study of all the books, all the lectures, all the written materials. It's, I mean, like, literally all the bulletins, all those red volumes. That's the course pack for the course. You read all of those and do a lot of drills and practicals and exercises and clay demos and all the rest. It takes about a year, full time, going nine to six every day, Monday through Friday, to get through that course. It is a biggie. And uh, now it hasn't been being delivered in many, many years, maybe coming up on almost 10 years now. It's been a long time. What's up with that? Well, um, apparently it's up for revision with going through all the lectures and all the books and revising everything and all the technical volumes, which apparently have been removed from the organizations now. They don't even have them to access. They just have course packs and single issues and things to look at. So uh, I have no idea how they are justifying all of that within the church, but I think it has to do with, well, we had to pull this for review and then t- just taking forever to do the review because that's Scientology. That's how they do things. And mostly that's because everything lands on Miscavige's desk and just stays there for months, even years. Um, now, as far as how can they train class 8 and class 12 auditors, well, pretty easy. They just don't make any class 8s anymore either because the class 6 course, the brief, the briefing course is a requirement to do the class 8 course, but it's not a requirement to do, and this is going to sound weird, and I'm not going to go into all the minutiae details of this, but it's not a requirement to do the class 6 course in order to do the or, or the class eight course in order to do the class nine course. And then there's class 10. You could only have to be what's called a grad five, a graduate level five auditor in order to jump from, from five up to nine. You skip the briefing course, you skip the class seven course and the class eight course, and you can go straight to class nine. And then um, I'm assuming that because they have been making new auditors to deliver the L's, which is the second half of your question, you asked about case supervisors also, which I'll answer because it's the same thing. They just changed the prerequisite. So you only have to be a grad five now, a, a graduate auditor level five, in order to do the class 10, 11, and 12 course. So you get that same jump. They just compensated for it by taking out the requirements, is all you see. In order to be able to deliver the Ls, you have to have a class tw- 10, 11, and 12 auditors, with well, class 12s, really, because they just kind there's not too many class 10s and class 11s around. They just do 10, 11, and 12, and then they can deliver all three of the L rundowns. And that's a real hot commodity in Scientology because the Ls are really super expensive. So they were not going sh- to stop that cash cow from happening, even though all the Class 12s that had been made all those years ago by L. Ron Hubbard personally, or at Flag pre-Miscavage being around, all those guys are dying off or have been declared or been kicked out. So they had to make new ones. So they just made new revised check sheets in order to do it. And that's how I understand that that's happening. Barney Saunders. At the end of the podcast episode from Lloyd Evans' channel with Sarah Edmondson, they discuss the circumstances where people do need to stay inside a destructive cult and where it would not be appropriate or advisable for them to wake up or be woken up. Lloyd Evans gives two examples. One, people who deliberately hurt other people just because it benefits them and who therefore probably deserve to be in a cult. At least to some degree, their behavior is being controlled And maybe if they weren't, their behavior would be even more psychotic and even more damaging. Two, people who have already seriously harmed their loved ones as a result of their cult beliefs. For example, Jehovah's Witnesses' parents whose child has died because of a refusal to give blood transfusions, and where the person waking up would quite conceivably trigger a serious breakdown and possibly suicide. When do you think it would be advisable not to wake someone up from a destructive cult? Do you agree with these two scenarios? Can you think of any more? All right, Barney, thank you for this question. And this is a very interesting and important question, and I'm glad you brought it up. I did not see or watch that podcast with Lloyd, um, but I vehemently disagree with both of these ideas or scenarios. And let me explain exactly, precisely why. First off, I want to differentiate right away that there is a very big difference between an extremist belief set and being in a destructive cult. These are two different things. You can be, you can hold whatever beliefs you want and not act in an abusive fashion with those beliefs. And if that's the case with you or anybody else, I have nothing to say about it at all. And neither should anybody else because you're not doing anything about those beliefs. Why thought police you? Why belief police you? right? I don't care. I don't care what you believe and neither should anybody else. It's what you do with those beliefs. Now, we can't say that belief is unimportant totally because belief does inform action. And quite a few actions that people take because of their beliefs can be quite destructive. And when we get groups of these people, you know, under, under an authoritarian leader, we call these destructive cults. And destructive cults are about action, not belief, Okay, and I'm really, I really want to make this very clear distinction that destructive cults are destructive because of what they do, not because of what they believe. And it's very important that we differentiate these things. And this is one of the reasons why. Um, It is not something that somebody deserves to be stuck in a destructive cult situation. Whether in the short-term, medium, or long-term, it appears that that person is even benefiting from their membership, abusing other people, taking advantage, et cetera, they don't deserve to be there. There isn't a, a single human being who deserves, because of their very existence and nature, they have earned the, the, the abuse that is rained down on them in that authoritarian situation. That simply isn't true. There isn't anybody who deserves that. When people deserve punishment, we put them in a court of law and we have laws and we judge them accordingly. And while there might be all kinds of ideas and attitudes and, and opinions about the morality of this, that's just what those are. They are opinions. My opinion is Nobody deserves to be abused the way that a group like Scientology or the Jehovah's Witnesses abuse people. They threaten their lives. They actually are responsible for people's deaths. Somebody deserve that? No, nobody deserves that. Okay, so I'm just going to take that argument off the table, okay? Regardless of what they did in the cult, that doesn't mean they deserve to stay there even David Miscavige. He doesn't deserve it, not because of his very existence or because of who he is. He deserves all kinds of things. Don't get me wrong. His crimes should be punished. He is responsible for those. But that. But you see the point I'm making here. It's, it's a little bit of a different thing here, okay? Um, And this is kind of important because if this is the kind of question that's going to inform how we look at cult members, then I have to be super specific and say not one of those people should be there. Not one person who's stuck in Scientology should have to be there. Not one person who's stuck in Mormonism should have to be there. Or not one person who's, you know, uh, in Oregon under one of those holy hell sort of things deserves to be there. Okay, I think I've beaten that down enough that, that we're clear on that, okay? Now, as far as um, people who have seriously harmed their loved ones as a result of their cult beliefs, maybe they wake up and they're going to have, you know, have to deal with that. Well, yeah, they are going to have to deal with that, and they should deal with that because that's the honest way that you take responsibility for something. And if they need to be eased into that, then they get eased into it. Exit work and getting people out of cults is a pretty difficult and time-consuming and energy-intensive activity, and it takes what it takes to get a person out. It might take years to get somebody out, just working on them and working on them and working on them at their their comfort level, not yours, right? You got to deal with the person in front of you. And if the person in front of you has done horrible things, criminal things, they have to be brought around to seeing that and dealing with that and taking responsibility for it. And obviously, you would never do something like that in such a way as to overwhelm them or beat them with their guilt or try to make them have some kind of psychotic episode or trigger a breakdown. You don't, no, 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 no. You don't want any part of that. So you have to ease the person into it. And people who do exit work and recovery work generally understand how this kind of thing goes because they're not very successful at it if they don't. So um, so that's that's what I can say about that, right, is you need to ease the person into it. You need to do it responsibly. But if you do it responsibly, you can help the person out of that situation so they aren't thinking that way anymore and they don't kill themselves or beat themselves mercilessly about it in the process. You know, and you've heard me go on at at quite a clip on this show about hindsight bias and about what we are and are not responsible for, what we did and didn't, didn't cause in our past. And this can be, this is important stuff. So, so it's not a bad question to ask. It's just, I'm, I'm very disappointed that there was, you know, this agreement that, you know, people should be stuck there. That should just be left to rot in a destructive cult. They shouldn't. That's, that's just not right. However, if you can't do it right, if you can't get the person out in such a way that you can ease them out, that you can deal with them as a human being first, that you can show some compassion for them. even You don't have to empathize with them. You don't have to you know, feel what they feel, but you do have to have compassion for the person you're assisting out of a cult situation. And it can be quite trying. It can be quite difficult to do. So I can understand why in frustration or upset or anger or some misguided idea of karmic justice, People might have the idea, and I'm not. I'm not calling out Lloyd or Sarah or anybody in by by name here. I'm not. I mean, in very general terms, if there is a person, anybody who doesn't understand how this stuff works, how exit recovery works, how counseling works, and what it takes to ease somebody out, then I can see why they would immediately jump to, "Oh, well, screw that person. That, yeah, fuck them. They they deserve it. They that's they've done such horrible, awful things that they deserve everything that you know that they get." Well, I've certainly been on that, you know, vengeance bandwagon myself plenty of times. But if I'm really putting my academic hat on here and I'm being really serious about answering this question and taking my own personal, you know, uh, emotions out of the picture, then um, then I have to say these things, right? Because it would be easy for me to go, ah, Miscavige, Rathbun, all these guys—they deserved every bad thing that ever happened to them. No, they didn't. Nobody deserves Scientology. No one, <laughs> and that's the real truth of the matter. So i I hope that it, I hope that answers the question. I um uh yeah, I really beat that one down hard. Now, now, all that being said, let me come back around to how I how I introed my answer to this: belief sets versus cults. Okay, let's talk about people who have extreme beliefs. I don't think there's any reason necessarily to dogpile on somebody who's got some weird ideas or beliefs if they're not doing anything wrong to anybody. You know, if those beliefs are not informing abusive action, leave them alone. There's no reason to have to deal with that. Just because they're thinking wrong thoughts according to the way you see the world or interpret it doesn't mean they're wrong. Just doesn't, right? In general terms, that's just a disagreement. That's not moral right and wrong, and you can be as sure as you want to be that you're morally right, but when it comes to somebody else's thoughts, you, you, just, you just don't get to police them, <laughs> and there are some people who have held beliefs, very comforting beliefs. Now, let's talk about religious beliefs, for example, very comforting religious beliefs that are absolutely nuts, according to your estimation or mine. I, I mean, there's all kinds of beliefs out there that are whack, I think, but I don't care if the person holds them or not, right? If they're not giving me a hard time or anybody else about it, why should I? So in such a case, let's say you have, let's say you have a young earth creationist grandmother, 86, living her life, everything's groovy, going along. You see her on holidays. She talks about, you know, maybe drops a few things about how the earth is only 6,000 years old and the dinosaurs and people were walking hand in hand and, you know, some of these crazy ideas. Well, that's nice, Grandma, thank you very much. I'm not gonna try to do some exit counseling or work over on, you know, uh, street epistemology on Grandma. Why would I try to take those things away from her? Well, who, who, you know, who cares? Not important, right? And in such a case, if I were to try to start working her over and it get really invasive and insulting and really work her over to, you know, and let's say I succeed and now she doesn't have that comfort anymore. And I just took that away from her. I mean, that's that's kind of cruel, you know, as far as I'm concerned, it is. Uh, and I hope we see the difference here. Those are the two scenarios I wanted to kind of throw out there in answer to the question. Let me know what you guys think. I'm I'm curious about your feedback on that. Alan Mitchell, I'm curious what your personal opinion is regarding Scientology successes. Have any of these people actually achieved anything in the way of inner healing, maturity, and self-improvement through Scientology? Or is it possible they have simply slid deeper into hypnotic self-delusion? All right. Thank you for this question, Alan. And the the truth is that it's both. It's not an either or. There are people who have had material substantial gains with Scientology auditing or training. And there are maybe those same people or other people who have sunk deeper into delusion and um, pretty skewed, you know, bizarre worldviews. And both can happen even in the same auditing session. So it's a real mix of things here. But what I will say about this is that what you do not get in Scientology are the promises fulfilled. You don't get the abilities gained that Scientology promises. And let me give you an example. At grade zero is the ability to communicate with anyone about anything. That's the ability gained from grade zero, from communication auditing, is you should be able to tell anybody anything you want anytime you should also now now that's not just you telling other people this actually extends out to you being able to admit or tell anything to yourself you being able to tell other people anything them being able to tell you anything other people being able to tell other people anything and you're okay with it you don't have to stop them halt them censor them Get all in a tizzy about it because of some subconscious impulses or or ideas. And um, yeah, and then self to self. So those are your four flows on which communication is supposed to now be totally freed up and you are supposed to be a communication release. Okay, well, you can clearly see every single Scientologist fails that test miserably because they are not willing to hear a word I say. They are not willing to experience that communication. So if they have the ability to hear or experience any communication, yet there are communications they must censor because, and and this is important, because they believe that Hubbard told them, they believe that hearing my words, actually hearing anything I have to say, Leah, Mike, Tony, all of us, all us critics, not just me. Any anti-Scientology, critical of Scientology material is going to hurt them spiritually. It's actually going to stop their forward progress to hear words. I mean, the, the contradictoriness is built into the DNA of Scientology. You can't escape it, right? You can't say you can have the ability to communicate with anyone on any subject freely and comfortably and then have a church policy that forbids open communication on topic a b c d and e these two things are are it's just so hypocritical right it doesn't work so how do these two th- you know so so i will easily show how scientology that just as that and that's just one level i could do the same with you know grade 1 the problems right the uh, ability to spot any source of uh, problem and thereby make the problem vanish That's the ability gained for grade one, is you're supposed to be able to spot the sources of problems that are in your life and thereby make them vanish by spotting that. It's magic. It's magical thinking. It's it's completely whack. But this is what Scientologists think. And that thinking, by the way, has plagued me for far too long. I mean, even up to this day, that stuff still interferes with my thinking, um, because it's magical thinking. It's, it's like, oh, well, I realized why the problem exists, so it should just go away now. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> that's not how it works. But that's how Scientologists think it works, okay? So in auditing sessions, right, returning this directly to your question, in auditing sessions, people have wins. They have these, oh, I can spot any problem and, and I can make it go away, Well, that's not a very permanent gain because they find out in a day or two that it's just not true. You know, some problem comes on and they can't make it go away, you know, or, uh, but they can't admit that to themselves. And so begins the motivated reasoning and the cognitive dissonance and all that. Um, But the wins and gains they're having in auditing having to do with communication or problems or, you know, litany of other things that they, that they tackle right? Those aren't really very substantive gains. They're not really very substantial. They don't, they don't hold a lot of weight. So I get to, I can judge that. I can look at that objectively and go, yeah, that's that's kind of nonsense. Now, that all being said, does that, you know, can you go into an auditing session and talk about your mom or talk about communication problems you're having with your coworkers and maybe go to work the next day and maybe, you know, Act a little different and maybe communicate a little different and sort of change things. If you, you know, maybe talk a little less, if you thought you were talking too much, maybe talk a little more. If you thought you were being a little too bit introverted, you know, like maybe you could adjust things in your world based on some epiphany or realization that you had in an auditing session. Perfectly legit, totally valid. And as a result, you're improving conditions in your life, right? Great. So that's the kind of thing I think you're going to see in terms of positive. I mean, really, when you get down to the brass tacks of it, it's little things like that. But Scientologists exaggerate it and make it out to be this great, big, huge thing. And every win has to be like the most fantastic thing ever. And I can, you know, see sounds and I can taste the saline content in my cells and, you know, all this crazy nonsense that they get up to with perception and ability That are just—they're just—that's—that stuff is just delusion, you know. There's just no other word for it. Nobody is sensing the saline content of their cells. (laughs) Ah, sometimes I really am just shocked that I used to think that way. Brian J. I was watching David Miscavige on a YouTube video called Briefing to OT Ambassadors from 2004, and he was presenting the materials guide chart and the new video-on-demand displays for the orgs. In those displays, he was talking about the different groups of LRH lectures and how many Scientologists don't know the differences. There are Congresses, ACC's, Foundations, and some others. What are the differences with these groups of lectures? All right. Thank you for this question. And you're talking about, this is funny, this briefing to OT Ambassadors from 2004, if you want to look that up, guys, that's a video I personally watched nine separate times when I was in the Sea Org because I wanted to absorb every single word that Miscavige said in that briefing. So I remember it quite well. Um, and because uh, I went over it so many times and it was and I thought it was so important because he explains the whole ideal org thing and the division sixes and how we're going to put a third of the staff in the front lines and getting people in. Well, of course, that never happened. And we're going to have to fundraise for all these buildings. And, well, that happened. <laughs> and all these lectures were going to be released. And he explained the differences in categories of L. Ron Hubbard lectures. So um, so basically, let me just give you the three basic types, because there's there are there are different kinds of lectures. Um, Hubbard gave over five thousand recorded lectures and briefings during the time that he ran Scientology from one thousand, nine hundred and fifty forward. Uh, I think the last lectures that were recorded, I think, are from 74, 76, something like that. There's just a, just a really small handful in the, in the mid 70s. Most of it was most of his lecturing was done by the 60s and um, some supplemental stuff in the 70s, and that was about it. But the bulk of it was in the 50s and 60s. And a lot of those lectures, almost all of the the, the, the largest percent of the library, or public lectures given out to new public or existing Scientologists as public, not staff or Sea Org. There are staff-only lectures and there are Sea Org-only lectures. Those are covered on um, when you do like, say the um, Welcome to the Sea Org course. Uh, There's a series of lectures called the Welcome to the Sea Org Lectures. Those are only for Sea Org members, public never hear those. Um there are staff lectures where Hubbard talks about letter writing and the central files and addresso and ethics and and running the organization and how to play the piano of the organization. Those are, you know, there's a handful of those lectures. Those are the organization executive course lectures and the briefing lectures, the flag executive briefing course lectures. So um, so you have small sets of these very specialized lectures. But the bulk of it, like I said, was to the public. And you had, um, basically, Hubbard was doing different kinds of events. And based on the kind of event he was holding to put the lectures or the conference on would determine what kind of lectures they were and how he would talk to the public. You had raw public, new, open, anybody could walk in and do these and hear these lectures. Those were the um, congresses. And congresses were held in the 1950s and early 1960s, about twice a year on average. Um, New Year's time period and then summer time period is usually how it broke down. Although some some years were different. And the congresses were, um, hey, bring your friends, bring your family, whatever, bring them all down to a congress. We're going to have a congress. It's going to be a raucous good time. We're going to party. We're going to have fun. Hubbard's going to going to give us some lectures. Maybe do some demonstrations. We're going to do some auditing. It's going to be all simple, easy peasy stuff. Um, Hubbard didn't necessarily always dumb down the vocabulary. He expected the family and friends to do the translating when they were in the audience. But the Congresses were those kind of activities. Congresses often led to um, the next set of lectures, uh, which were the ACCs, the Advanced Clinical Courses. The ACC's were started in 1952, 53. I think 53 was the first ACC. And um, those were also held, usually right tagging on the end of the Congress. He'd come into town, like let's say he'd go to Washington, D.C. in June, uh, you know, whatever, 1958 or whatever, right? And he goes to town, they hold a Congress. It's like a weekend. And then the next that next week, Hubbard is getting these special auditors that the highest trained auditors in that area or people are flying in and attending the advanced clinical course. And that's hardcore technical Hubbard, giving it to him with both fists, you know, talking to them as auditors. So it was a much more technical. And it was interesting because before we knew about these differentiations, it was just some lectures were hard and others were easier. And we never really did understand exactly why. Miscavige categorizing them actually sort of helped explain the 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 history of Scientology and how Hubbard went about doing his business. So, okay, so Congress's, ACC's, that was a pretty standard pattern. And that went on, like I said, through most of the 1950s and, and early 60s, mid-60s. Um, another kind of lecture that you have are staff auditor lectures. And this is where Hubbard would, I'd say, roll into D.C. or Los Angeles or something and give a series of lectures uh, while he was in town, let's say, um, to the auditors not as advanced as the ACC's. Maybe it was some update material or some new processes that were being tested, or he was talking about auditing and how auditing should be done or, you know, whatever. There's there's tons of these things. So you have those are your sort of auditor, staff auditor briefing kind of lectures. And there's a bunch of sets of lectures that, that, that fit under that bill. And, um, yeah. Then you have other kind of lectures. You do have raw, raw, raw public lectures meant for brand, brand new people, even, even lower grade than the Congresses. Um, the Golden Dawn lectures, for example, and the, they were in Phoenix in 1954, 55 time period. Hubbard was, uh, was giving public lectures at, a, at, open, at an open auditorium. It wasn't even on the church property. So, um, so that those kind of lectures exist, but and those are most of the lectures that are used by the church now for introductory lectures that they sell to the public. There's a lot of DVDs they sell or CDs they sell of Hubbard talking to brand new people, and uh, that's where they got it from. So uh, that's basically how it breaks down. Nick, over time, you've interviewed many interesting guests on your podcast. How do those interviews come about? Do you pursue potential guests? Do they find you? Or is there a person in the middle who can suggest a guest they know and make an introduction? Thanks for the question, Nick. It is all of the above. I have gotten uh, podcast guests uh, through all kinds of means, through literally meeting people randomly, uh, like at the Hub. That's where I met Christiana, who did that whole breakdown with me on the Duggars and uh, the... Uh, ATI Gothard Cult, um, to I reach out to people through Twitter, through email, through their websites. I, I you know, I pursue them. I want to get them on my show and um to greater or lesser degree of success other people reach out to me sometimes i have cult survivors email me and ask if i'd be interested in interviewing them sometimes i'm contacted by publicists or agents of people to you know interview them or or their their clients that's pretty rare but it does happen from time to time and uh yeah that's kind of how it's been working it's it's real hit and miss actually um, cause it's just me, it's just me flying solo on, on figuring it out. So I, so sometimes it runs hot and I'm like, you know, four weeks out and ahead, like I kind of am right now a little bit. I got, I got, I got things in the can for the next about three or four weeks and other times, you know, it's feast or famine. Right. So, uh, so that's kind of how it goes on the, um, on podcast guests, but I'm always, uh, I'm always looking for interesting people to talk to. <laughs> All right, let's do some flash answers. Joni DeRoshi. Hypothetical. A high-profile Scientologist blows and becomes an outspoken activist against Scientology. Scientology uses personal information from this person's PC folder as part of a smear campaign to embarrass or discredit or otherwise harm them. But there are laws around priest penitent privilege which, if Scientology is a church, it seems they would have to follow. Is it against the law for them to publicly share anything revealed during auditing since it's basically a religious confession? Yeah, not so much, actually. You might want to check out the priest penitent privilege Wikipedia page uh, to see kind of how this breaks down because it's the organization's rules that keep the priests from talking. It's not the law. There's no law that says a priest must shut up. It's the, the laws say the priest doesn't have to talk. You see, there's a difference. And with Scientology, they have you sign legal contracts, right, when you get in there, that specifically state that you sign and understand that those PC folders and all their contents aren't your property and never will be. They're not yours. You don't get to decide what happens with your PC folders in Scientology, so, they, they are owned by the church, and the church has, keep, maintains full rights of determination over those folders. So, um, so legally speaking, the law can't step in and say, hey, he told you that in confidence. You can't say that. There's no law that, 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 that they get to do that, uh, that, I, that not, not as I see how the priest penitent privilege laws work right? A Scientology auditor could not be compelled, if if I understand the laws correctly, an auditor could not be compelled to testify against you. But the Office of Special Affairs isn't your auditor. And the stuff in your PC folder is protected for the church, but it's still their property. And if they want to say stuff, they'll say stuff. And you have to sue for slander or libel if they're saying false stuff about you. That's how it works, right? And at that point, you might then make the case that this information was given in confidence. That might be another reason for them to, you know, wrangle it back in. But that's going to be super, super, super context-specific. You know, how did you give over the information? Under what circumstances? Under what understanding? What did you sign? right? What rights did you have at that moment, et cetera? There's a lot of questions there, and and the devil is in the details when it comes to questions like this. So that's the best I can do for you on that one. Holly Provenkel, before states and countries were beginning to lift travel bans, how did the flag service organization deal with not being able to have people come down every six months for their OT7 security checks? Holly, as far as I know, they were having people come and they were making them stay for a two-week quarantine period before they would let them on the base so they could do their services, but they were absolutely still pulling people in. And for those who couldn't come in or wouldn't come in because of the two-week quarantine, I don't know how they dealt with that. I really don't. Um, But I do know the quarantine period was in place all of last year, and as far as I know, is still uh, going um, well, I, th- I don't know, actually. I don't know if it's still going in flag right now or not. Travis, do you approve of tasers? Eh. I think, and I've said, um, that I think law enforcement officers should be trained in jujitsu, and I think that they should hold black belts in that discipline, and that they should understand how to safely um, bring a person down you know, restrain a person without killing or even necessarily permanently harming them, and there are ways to do that. And when you're a trained professional, then you know how to do those things. And that's what I think cops should be trained in. Do I approve of tasers? Sure. I don't have a problem with them, but I think they're, you know, a little overused. And I think that they're unreliable um, in certain circumstances where if you have training, you can rely on that training. All right, guys, that is our show for this week. Thank you very much for coming around and listening to me ramble on here and answer your questions. Do send any more you have to me at AskChrisShelton at gmail.com. I am keen to answer more. I always love hearing from you guys, and I really appreciate your viewership. Please do, if you are enjoying my channel and my show and what I'm putting out, please do like and share it and spread it around on the internet. I very much want to grow my channel, and I'm wholly relying on you guys to help me do that. All right. Thank you very much.